Let's pray together. Oh God, we could sense the depth of that passion coursing out of your divine soul. How, how, how are we supposed to understand it? What does it mean for the journey that awaits us all? Dear God, please, beyond the hype, beyond all the commotion about your passion, take us deep. We want that passion to be ours as much as it can be. Speak to us through Holy Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read to you a poem written by an atheist sitting at one of the cafe tables in our London TV studios a few nights ago. A poem he gave me on the last night of our two-week satellite series to the United Kingdom, to Europe, to South Africa, and to Australia. Essentially, east of the Atlantic, the postmodern secular West. I want to read this poem to you for two reasons. Number one, I believe it, it, um, it has a way of embracing this target group that I think for us as a campus have been much on our hearts and minds because of this mission that I've just returned from. Namely, again, postmodern secular Westerners. The poem is written by a gentleman named Terry. I met Terry either the first or the second night in the studios there. We had about 70 people sitting around the cafe tables. They had to come by ticket and then the rest uh, sitting in the shadows. I'm putting Terry's age at, uh, I don't know, late 40s, maybe early 50s. He works for the National Health Service of England. They, you know, the government takes care of medicine and uh, so, uh, uh, health services in that great land. He sat right up near the front. He only missed one night. Sat at that table night after night. I want to tell you something. When your purpose is to present and build a case for God, nothing will keep you more honest than knowing that you're staring into the face of an atheist right on that front row. First time he introduced to me with a great smile on his face, he said, Do I don't want to tell you, I'm an atheist. And what we did was we took the ten, uh, ten of the deepest human felt needs that we have as human beings, period, and then used those as uh, entrees, as it were, in an effort to make a case for God. So I want to read this poem to you. I, I wish I could tell you, by the way, that um, after the tenth night, Terry came to me. You know, after the, the, the video roll-ins. By the way, the production, the production crew, median age, for those of you into, into communication and technology, median age, I suppose, I don't know, 27, 28 years of age. They're all Australians. And I am telling you what, with class, they produced that program. The uh, video rolling, just uh, straight out of MTV, that kind of jerky editing, very fast-paced. I wish I could tell you the video rollings were what did it for Terry. I wish I could tell you it was the music. I'm telling you, the music was the most contemporary music I've ever heard. We're talking high octane. High octane. 
You didn't hear it in this music and uh, worship conference. You didn't hear that music. Uh, I wish I could tell you it was one of the uh, interviews we did. They, it was my privilege to interview authorities who were associated with every one of the uh, felt needs. And uh, so we, we would sit down and uh, chat about the particular evening subject. And I need to tell you, it was such, a, it was such an honor for me to be partnered with a, a beautiful, professional uh, Englishwoman. She is on the largest BBC market in the world. That's the BBC London market. Her name is Gillian Joseph. She's, her ancestors came from the Caribbean, but she speaks the Queen's English. She does the news every single day on the BBC. They call her newsreader, but we call them newscasters. She did it every day from 6 to uh, 1 o'clock, 6 in the morning. So she's, she's a pro, and she just lighted up the set uh, with her co-hosting. But Terry didn't come up to me after the 10th night and say, Dwight, you know, you convinced me. I, I believe now in God. You know, all of England practically is, uh, is uh, agnostic or atheist. You know that. And Europe is the same. And so is Australia. And so is South, South Africa. And we are in that, we're moving in that direction in this nation. So, but Terry said instead, I want to give you a poem I wrote. So here's a poem. Two reasons why I'm sharing it. It describes our target group. And by the way, second reason, I believe this poem captures the angst that postmodern seculars live with night and day. Listen to the poem. It's entitled Despair. I looked into the mirror. The loneliness and hurt stared back. The tears pouring, pouring down my face. I know there is no God. I shouted, there is no God. He does not exist. Just three stanzas to this. Wait for the third stanza. There is no God. He does not exist. He can't. Look at all the pain in the world. He doesn't answer my prayers. I've told him, take me. Spare someone who wants to live. I have no purpose in life. I want to die. I tell you, that is what has been impressed on me over and over again. How postmodern seculars live without any sense of purpose and meaning in their existence. They cover it. They mask it. The pub. The party. But down deep, there is no sense that I am here for any reason. I am just a chip on the sea of hapless fate. And that's who they are. They'll be happy and cheerful, but... But then the third stanza. In the second stanza, I have no purpose in life. I want to die. But here comes one last stanza. What makes you think? He has somebody speaking. I don't know who this is who's speaking. What makes you think he didn't hear? He has looked deep into your soul. There he saw all the pain and hurt. He knew as he knows all that you want the pain to end and be happy again. The end of a poem entitled Despair. Suggests in the third stanza, maybe there's somebody who knows. You know what, ladies and gentlemen, I believe God is opening Terry's heart. I've got to go back in July to shoot ten more programs. I want to see Terry then. I believe God is opening up the hearts of hundreds and thousands of postmodern pagans, as it were. Longing. I tell you, Karen and I came back from England just burdened that we have got to be doing more than we are to carry this growing segment of western of the western populace on our hearts i need to tell you that uh, your prayers and your praying are what made the incredible difference i want to thank you many of you uh, were praying i know students have come up and faculty and community your praying is what made the difference every night I'd stand behind the set after doing all the interview on this big mod set with a white couch and all, and I'm back waiting for the last live music. I mean, this band was live and it would always, it would always be vocal music uh, for the performance. 
As soon as that was done, I would walk out and begin this little 30-minute lecture. And I'm back there sweating. I'm thinking, how am I going to get through this technical material? It is so philosophical. This is not what we normally share. And, oh, God, I don't have this memorized. And then the Spirit would say, why don't you just forget it? Remember. And He would do this. He would bring the faces of those I knew who were praying back here at home. And I would remember that you were praying. And on the wing, I'm telling you the truth, on the wings of that memory, I'd walk out with the applause at the end of that uh, musical number, open up the notes. And I believe when you see the DVDs, they're being produced now into, into nine languages. And we'll get a set and we'll, we'll share them with you. I believe you will be proud of God for what He did when you see this production. Thank you very, very much for your prayers. That we've had our prayer. So I want to move now. I don't know what you think about Mel Gibson and his movies in the past. And I don't know what you're going to think about Mel Gibson and his movies in the future. But I've got to say this in public. I don't see how you can fault the man's intentions in producing a major Blockbuster, by the way, runaway success, the highest grossing R-rated film in history. I don't see how you can fault his desire to produce that film. I've heard him say this. I was 30 feet away from him. Okay, I'm not watching TV now. He's there in the room. I'm 30 feet away from him. And I heard him say, I am making this production. It's before it was released. I'm making this production because I want to tell people what Jesus did on the cross. Now, you can fault him for past and future, but you can't fault him for that. I was invited to see a pre-release screening of The Passion of the Christ. And... For pastors only, with their spouses, photo ID, you'd be charged $100 if you didn't show. It was in a church. Heard the interview and saw the pre-cut final release. You know, I, I left to England the day before the film was released here. The day before. So I was curious how, what was going to be happening back in the, in the homeland. I was amazed with some of the papers and critiques that were sent to me by email some criticism that some Christians have been leveling at Gibson's artistic portrayal of Jesus' last 12 hours. I've read four of them, four different individuals, and I've got to tell you, I kept wondering, have they even seen this? They were all released before the film was. So, did they even see, do they know what they're tearing apart? I mean, some of them have criticized the use of drama to portray divine truth. And I'm thinking that is so odd because Jesus used parables for that very reason. He used drama to portray divine truth. Others were saying, well, there was some sort of an, some sort of aberrant Catholic influence that was being felt in that film. Others were suggesting, criticizing the very graphic portrayal of the scourging and crucifixion that resulted in the film's R rating. And all the while, I'm thinking to myself, I wish my friend Terry the Atheist, because it was just released in England two weeks ago, I wish my friend Terry the Atheist would stumble into a theater and watch this film about a potential God who potentially does love Him now. I'm thinking, I wish Terry would see it. I fear that many of the critiques were written without thinking of lost people at all. They're thinking that the whole world's got to read the Bible and find it. The world is not going to read the Bible and find it. There are people out there that wouldn't know where do you find Genesis. I'm thinking these critiques 
maybe didn't think about lost people like Terry who might wander into a theater and view Jesus' sacrificial death. You know, maybe, just maybe, Jesus is right. This promise in John 12, 32, maybe, just maybe, what Jesus said is true, but I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to me. Maybe it could happen. So why would I want to be so hard on this artistic effort to connect a, an, a secular West with the story of salvation. You know what? I found myself returning over and over again to Paul's passionate defense of even jaded and misrepresenting uh, presentations of Jesus. Take a look at this. I won't forget Philippians 1, 15 and 18 as long as I live. And I have chosen to make this my motto. We have got to connect to the postmodern West. And we better start thinking, wait a minute, let's not be known for what we're against. Let's be known for what we're for. Take a look at this. Philippians 1, verse 15. Paul's writing, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Now, I like this next line. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I'm just glad he's getting preached. I don't care who preaches him, Mel Gibson or anybody, little Dwight Nelson. It doesn't matter to me as long as he gets preached. I rejoice. And so it is that because of the passion of the Christ that has preoccupied this nation, I've learned since coming home, we begin today a new pulpit series, The Christ of the Passion. Who is this Christ? Who is this God who would send His eternal Son to that center cross? Why did God endure the hell of Calvary? And could it be that what Calvary in the end is about is God's passion for lost people? Open your Bible, please. Let's go. Our first study today, Mark, the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 14. Open your Bible, please. Mark, chapter 14. Let's begin the, where the passion of Christ begins, by the way. This is where it begins. In that misty blue midnight garden. Say what you will. Mel Gibson certainly got this point right. And that is there is absolutely no point in a pilgrimage to Calvary if that journey does not begin first in Gethsemane. To get to the cross, you have to go through the garden or you'll never understand the cross. He got it right. In fact, that point is so significant. I wish you would take out your study guide that's in your worship bulletin right now. Would you take it out? I want you to fill that line in. Listen, we have some extras here. Uh, ushers, would you quickly, please, don't spend too much time doing this. Just hold your hand up, ladies and gentlemen. If you came in with three of you and one bulletin, I want you, there's some dynamite quota quotations here that I want you to have. Hold your hand up. We have something for everybody. And I want to say to those of you who are watching on television right now, if you will go to our website, www, I'll put it on the screen, www.pmchurch.tv, you see the Christ of the Passion. Here's the study you want. Click on to the Garden of Hell, the Garden of Hell. You click on there and you will get this identical. It'll pop up in front of you, this identical study guide. I want to make sure everybody in the balcony. How about the choir? Do you have your study guides? Good. All right. Let's go. Fill it in, please. Line number one. You cannot understand the cross until you have been to the garden. Please fill that in. You cannot understand the cross until you have been to the garden. Garden first. Then Calvary. All right. Once upon a time, it's your next line. Once upon a time, the human race fell in a garden. And once upon another time, the human race got saved 
in a garden. The tale of two gardens. I thought Fulton Sheen's contrast of the two gardens was significant enough to put it in your study guide. Take a look at that, will you? Fulton Sheen in his great book, The Life of Christ. Let's put it on the screen, please. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, Christ took humanity's sin upon Himself. In Eden, Adam hid himself from God. In Gethsemane, Christ interceded with His Father. In Eden, God sought out Adam in his sin of rebellion. In Gethsemane, the new Adam sought out the Father and His submission and resignation. In Eden, a sword was drawn to prevent the entrance into the garden and thus immortalize evil. In Gethsemane, I like this, the sword would be sheathed, put back in that scabbard. All right, the Gospel of St. Mark. Mark chapter 14. I'll be in the New International Version today with you in this study. It's a Bible in front of you. If you didn't bring one, it'll be on the screen here. Mark chapter 14. Let's pick it up. Verse 32. Mark 14, 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. The Last Supper has ended. All right, the last one of you guys out, please close the door behind you. And the last one out dutifully does it. Patters down with his sandals. That was hard. Pounding stairs. The Passover orb is silver and full as it silently tags at the dusty sandals of a band of twelve young men. It should be thirteen, but one of them has already slithered into the darkness to perform his nefarious deed of betrayal. And so this small band, Jesus and the eleven, now hurry through the patches of silver, black silver, black, that have fallen at the feet of the eastern gate of Jerusalem, down into a notch carved beside Jerusalem called the Kidron, and then up a winding, wending way to an olive garden called in the Aramaic Olive Press or Gethsemane. A few muffled commands are obviously given, and suddenly the group splits. Eight of the young men take up positions beside the gnarled olive trunks there at the gate of the garden, but four... Move away from the eight and now begin to slip even deeper into the dark shadows of that gray-green olive tree cover. And as they pick their way beneath that lattice of olive branches, beams of silver sporadically fall on their faces. But it's not the faces of the four that compel us to look. It is the face of one. One face so strangely twisted, so troubled. It is the face of Jesus that draws us to His agonized eyes. Something's happening to Jesus. Something is happening and the gospel writers are absolutely silent. They will describe it. They will not define it. John himself will not even breathe of that terrible moment. Just one cryptic clue later in his narrative. That's all we know. Of the synoptics, only one was written, as it were, by an eyewitness in the inner circle. And that would be Peter. And Peter was there. And Peter told John Mark. And John Mark told you and me. And that's why. We're at the eyewitness account. Verse 32, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to His disciples, Sit here. He didn't say sleep here. He said, Sit here. Sit here while I pray. And He took, verse 33, Peter, James, and John along with Him, and He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, He said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Something mysterious, ladies and gentlemen, is happening to Jesus. Look, can this, this can't be the same Jesus who just minutes ago said in the upper room, I have given you my joy, that my joy might be complete in you. This can't be the same Jesus who hours ago said, hey, by the way, guys, don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Something's happened to Jesus. 
Can't be the same Jesus who sang the Passover halal. Praise the Lord, all ye nations. Can't be the same Jesus. Something's happened to him. Verse 34 again, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Mark is the only one who uses the, the Greek verb ekthambiomai, which means to be horror struck. Horror struck. I don't know what's happening to me, Peter. I feel like I'm dying. John, James, please pray. If ever I have needed you guys now, pray, pray. I feel like something is going to kill me. I'll go a little farther. I want to be alone, but you pray for me. I'll be right back. Pray for me. Something is happening to Jesus. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground. The classic on the life of Jesus, the desire of ages, describes what's been happening. I want to put that on the screen. As they approached the garden, the disciples had marked the change that came over their master. Never before they'd seen him so utterly sad and silent. As he proceeded, this strange sadness deepened. Yet they dared not question him as to the cause. His form swayed as if he were about to fall. Upon reaching the garden, the disciples looked anxiously for his usual place of retirement that their master might rest. Every step that he took now was with labored effort, groaning aloud as if suffering under the pressure of a terrible burden twice. Something Mel Gibson didn't catch. Twice. His disciples struggled to support him or he would have fallen to the earth. Stay here. Stay here and keep watch with me. Ladies and gentlemen, could he have asked for anything less? All I'm asking is, you, I'm just asking you to stay awake with me for a while. Will you, will you pray with me? Could he have asked? He asked for so little. And guess what? We gave him even less in return. Watch with me. Stay here, please. Verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Verse 36, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Peter, we already know the story, don't we? Peter was asleep. Obviously, he stayed awake just long enough to hear the first prayer of Jesus because only Peter recalls that, in fact, Jesus pulled a word straight out of a children's book of prayers and he prayed it to God. Write it in your study guide, please. Abba, Daddy, my dear Papa. Oh, Papa God. Dear Papa, beloved Father. Take, take, take this cup. And notice, by the way, Jesus does not even dare to breathe. The nature of this mystery. He would just call it cup, cup. And it's short, choking sobs. Big carpenter convulsing shoulders. Cup, cup. Take it. Take it. Not what I want. What you want. But take it. Cup. His fingers raking in the moist garden earth. As he pleads, he is begging God to change this thing before it's too late. Finally, convulsing is over. He is so spent. Have you ever cried hard? Have you ever really cried hard? I mean, so hard that your stomach aches? I have. I mean, it's like somebody kicks you in the stomach. He pushes against the ground. He gathers, he gains his orientation. He says, well, at least, at least, at least I have friends. I'll go to my boys. 
They'll have something to say. If nothing, they'll at least put an arm around me and cry with me or pray with me or something. And you remember, yeah, you're right. He staggers back and they're zeeing away the three closest people on earth to him. Dead to the world. Dead to him. And you can almost feel the incredulous pain in Jesus' voice. What is this? Verse 37. And he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, Simon. Are you asleep? It's almost as if, come on, Pete, Pete, Peter, Peter, Peter. You're not sleeping, are you? You just put your head down. That's right. You're looking down. You're not asleep, are you, Peter? Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Just one hour. Is it too much for the suffering Christ to ask of you and me? I mean, can't you keep watch? Would you write it in your study guide, please? Can't you keep watch with me for one hour? One hour with the Simpsons? One hour with American Idol? One hour with CSI? You got an hour for that? Can't you give me one hour? Hours upon hours in cyberspace. Don't I get any space in your life? Hours and hours with the NCAA playoffs. Hours at the mall. Days and weeks you've been working and I don't get even, write it in please, I don't even get one hour. Couldn't you watch with me for one hour? Ah, pick it up in 37 again. And then he returned to his disciples, found them sleeping. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me for one hour? Now, here comes verse 38. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. If Peter had only prayed that night, we wouldn't know Peter for what we know him for. It wouldn't have happened. But he didn't. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing But the body is weak. Verse 39. And once more he went away and prayed the same thing. All over again. Choking sobs. Abba, Daddy, Papa, Beloved Father. Take it away. This cup. This cup. This cup. Take it. Take it. It's only the physician, Dr. Luke, who adds a a rather sickening detail to this intensity of Christ's praying. Only Luke, the doctor. You'd expect him to catch it. Apparently, the mental anguish is so intense that the the vessels are pressed right up against the sweat glands and the vessels burst, thus tinging his sweat with blood. And he's dripping red blood to the muddy midnight earth. How did Luke put it here? It's in your study guide. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. A rare condition called hematidrosis. 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 You have it in the study guide right in the word rare. It does happen. It It has happened. They have chronicled it. The intensity of that pressure. Ladies and gentlemen, I need to ask you right here. What is going on with Jesus? What's happening to him? What is this cup? This cup that he is loath to even touch. What's he talking about? Hmm? Is he talking about physical pain? Is that it? Oh, my. Is this going to hurt? Is it physical pain? Is it suffering? How can it be? It's impo- How could it be? Jesus told us the whole world of his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice and be glad when you are persecuted. Pain, just like they persecuted the prophets before you. Be happy. It can't be that he's afraid of pain. He told them, don't be afraid. What's going on with Jesus? Is he afraid of death? Is that it? He's afraid of dying. 
If so, then pagan Socrates did a better job with dying than Jesus of Nazareth. I'm just right now reading Bertrand Russell's History of Western Philosophy, in which he recounts Plato's narrative of Socrates' execution death. You remember Socrates? Yeah, come on. Everybody. Remember that from humanities? Socrates. Plato wrote, Socrates took his cup of henlock without trembling or changing color or expression. And when Socrates' friends burst into tears, he chided them for their absurd, his word, behavior. Keep quiet and be brave, he admonished. Can't be fear of death. John R.W. Stott takes that comparison of Socrates and then he writes, let's put this on the screen. So, was Socrates braver than Jesus or were their cups filled with different poisons? Ah, can't be trembling for the fear of physical suffering and death. Look, I've stood on the rock right beside where John Huss was burned at the stake by Lake Geneva. And you know what Huss did when they were burning his body up? You know what he did? He was singing, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Singing. It can't be physical suffering and death that he is shrinking from. What is it then? Ah, Jesus is steeped in the Old Testament. We know that. And do you know what the Old Testament does with the metaphor of the cup? Here's what the Old Testament does. Right there in your study guide. Did you take a look at these three texts? Do we have them there in the study guide? Yeah. Job 21, 20. Defines the drinking of the wrath. Job 21, 20. Drinking of the wrath of the Almighty. Go look these verses up sometime. Isaiah 51, 17. It speaks of Jerusalem being given a cup filled with the wrath of God who is punishing Jerusalem. Add another text, Psalm 75, verse 8. And it says in that text, the wicked will be asked to drink the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs. So when Jesus, who cannot name this mystery that is stealing over his soul, and he just says, the cup, the cup, the cup, clearly he is describing. In fact, would you put this in your study guide? Clearly the cup... Jesus trembles from drinking is the cup of God's holy wrath against our unholy sin. Write that in. Wrath. God's holy wrath against our unholy sin. Could it be that in the shadows of that misty midnight in Gethsemane, Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 6, in fact, are coming true. Let's put those verses on the screen and then you'll have to fill it in in your study guide. Isaiah 53, please. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. Next, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him, write it in please, the iniquity of us all. Something, some sludge, some awful sludge is being poured into the pure and unsullied mind and life of Jesus. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all, the sins of an entire rebel race. Do you have any ugly sins? I know you have pretty ones. Do you have any ugly sins? Do I have hideous sins? Yes, I do. All of those sins are being poured into the open mind of this God who's saying, I'm not sure we want to go through with this. Is there another way? The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of all of us. Fulton Sheen. Oh, this is something. Did I put this in the study guide? 
Bolton Sheen. No, look at this on the screen, will you? From the north. Do we have it up there? Yeah, look at this. From the north, south, and east and west, the foul miasma of the world's sins rushed upon Jesus like a flood. And then I like this metaphor. Samson-like. Remember Samson? He takes those two pillars and he pulls the whole guilt of the world upon himself as if he were guilty, paying for the debt in our name so that we might once more have access to the Father. Hallelujah. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity. All of Andrews University's sordid, sorry sin poured onto the heart of our Lord Jesus. And what happens when sin is poured into a perfect life? Well, I'll tell you what happens. You don't have to be a theologian or a rocket scientist to figure this out. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Now, what kind of death is it? Well, you've got to read the rest of the text. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So the wage has to be the antithesis of the gift. The gift is eternal life. Write it in, please. Death is eternal death. Eternal death. Eternal death. Goodbye forever. Read eternal separation. I don't need to remind you that the pre-incarnate Christ and the Father have shared an eternity in the past together. In the history of time, no closer community of love exists in the universe outside of the Trinity of God Himself. They are the closest that it is divinely, humanly possible to be. You know, once in a while, I come back home at night late and Karen has already gone to bed. And I look upon the, the slumbering face of this girl I love. And I'm telling you what, my wife is like an angel when she sleeps. She's like an angel. She's like an angel when she's awake. But, you know, when I look on that face, and I look on that face, and I see her sleeping, and I'm thinking to myself, what would I ever let come between me and that woman's love? You know, once in a while I have to be gone for a weekend. Sometimes I'm gone for a whole week. I can't imagine a moment coming when I would look into her eyes and say, you know, honey, this is it. It is goodbye forever. Cut off. We will never love again. We will never live together again. I cannot imagine it. And yet he sobs into the wet earth. Oh, Father, Daddy, Abba, please, surely this is not what you mean. Your will, your will, your will. But the cup, take the cup from me. What's happening here? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. What is Jesus doing? God made Jesus who had no sin. Write it in, please. He made Him to be sin. He's becoming sin in that dark moment of transfer. Misty blue Gethsemane. Jesus is becoming sin. And do you know what? It's killing Him. I wish sin would kill you and me too. Far too lightly. Far too quickly. You and I dismiss our nagging, naughty little sins. Shame on me. Tisk, tisk, tisk. I really shouldn't do that anymore. Hee, 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 hee. We grin it off. No big deal. Who cares? It's just sin. It's not a problem. Ladies and gentlemen, Gethsemane. Write this in, please. Only at Gethsemane. Will we have consciousness of the magnitude of evil that grips our careless souls? Go to the garden. Go to the garden. Don't go to the cross first. Go to Gethsemane first. There you will see 
the truth about sin. In fact, look at this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. Fill it in. In your struggle against sin, right in sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In fact, let's just do a little quiz right now. All of you who have sweat blood in resisting sin, raise your hands. Please, raise your hands because we're going to get a camera on you. Hold your hand up. <laughs> no, we're not. Of course not. We don't take sin that seriously. That's why I'm not going to sweat blood over sin. I'll just sin. Mark 14, 39, once more, Jesus went away and prayed the same thing. Desire of Ages, put this on the screen for you. This in the st- oh, this is in your study guide, good. Three times Jesus has uttered that prayer. Three times has humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. The awful moment had come, that moment which was to decide the destiny of the world. The fate of humanity trembled in the balance. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup apportioned to guilty man and woman. It was not yet too late. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what's going on in Gethsemane. It's not too late. He might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish. You go to hell. I'm going back to heaven. He could have. By the way, do you think for one moment, write it in, that Jesus was alone in that garden? Alone? Mel Gibson is absolutely right. That slithering snake, the metaphor of a woman, mantled. What is it? He's trying to say, he was not alone in that garden. You better believe that that old serpent called the devil was in the heart, the God of Gethsemane. And with all his hellish fury, he is hissing. Because Lucifer knows it's curtains for his legion of demons and him. If Jesus stumbles out of Gethsemane and crawls to the top of Golgotha, it's over for Lucifer. It is now or nothing and every force of hell is thrown against that prostrate supplicant who weeps. Get out of here. Get out of here, daddy's boy. Go back to your daddy where you belong. They don't want you. They don't care. Three closest friends you have on earth. Were they your three? Look at them. Dead to the world. Dead to you. I am the prince. This is my garden. This is my world. You go home, boy. You go back to daddy. Tell Abba, you've come home. This is mine. Was it a temptation for Jesus to go home? Write it in. The bloody ground. The bloody ground is proof enough that he struggled. Shall I go home? Abba, you're going to let me off of this. You're going to find another way. Or can I come home? The cup, the cup almost spills. I love how Desire of Ages puts it here. His decision is made. Superhuman cry falls to the earth. His decision is made. And you're going to have to fill in a word, an incredible word here. His decision is made. Jesus will save man at any cost to himself. He accepts his baptism of blood that through him perishing millions may gain everlasting life. Having made the decision, write it in. He fell dying to the ground from which he had partially risen. Did you catch that? He fell dying. He could have died. Dr. Luke tells us that an angel is sent to prevent that death. 
and to sustain him for his final journey. He could have died. And you think about this. He would have shed blood. Death would have taken place. He would have been crushed. But God says, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Not in the shadows of a garden. You will die on top of a mountaintop so that when you are lifted up, all people will be drawn to you. You can't die here, boy. My angel Gabriel will sustain you. Go on a little farther. You go on and then die. And as we will see, he will go through this hell one more time. Well, the angel comes down. Let the boy sleep. Let those followers of his snore away. The angel cradles the head of his commander. This is his commander as he wipes that bloody brow and whispers to him, You can do it. You can do it. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. The decision has been made in Gethsemane. Jesus will save you and me at any cost to himself. You know why? Right in the last four sentences. Here they are in rapid fire sequence. You know why? Because lost people matter to God. That's why. They, lost people, are the passion of God. They, lost people, are the passion of the Christ. The next time you hear the movie named, remember, the passion of the Christ is lost people. And Gethsemane surely calls us, you and me, to make them our passion too. I want to pray with you. Before I pray, I want to put this last quotation. You have it in your study guide. As I have thought of that cup trembling in the hands of Christ, as I have realized that He might have refused to drink and left the world to perish in its sin, I have pledged that every energy of my life should be devoted to the work of winning souls to Him. Let us pray. Oh, God, lost people matter most to you. They surely do. Why else? How else could Jesus have endured that garden of hell if lost people didn't matter more to you than anything else in the universe, even your own life and kingdom? Dear Abba Father, grant to us, please, please, Grant to us the passion of the Christ. Amen.